The following message is from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. For more information, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com. With that said, we're going to look, we're going to turn back to uh, the book of Exodus. If you have a Bible with you, you can turn to Exodus 25. Just as a, a little mini note on this before we get looking at the passage, we um, it has been great looking at the book of Exodus together. I've really enjoyed it. I hope you guys have too. Um, if you know anything about the book of Exodus, after you get through the Ten Commandments, it's a lot of like um, chapters on rules and temple set up and all this stuff, and we're not going to go through that verse by verse. Um, but we are gonna, we're going to finish up the book of Exodus um, by Memorial Day weekend. So we've got four weeks left, and we're going to kind of divide the next 15 chapters of the book of Exodus into four sermons. So we're going to look at God's place, so his house this week. We're going to look at God's priest next week. We're going to look at God's promise the following week. So that'll be Moses into Jesus. And then we'll end by looking at the last four verses of the book of Exodus, God's presence. So tonight, we're going to be picking up, looking at chapter 25 to 31. We're kind of be skimming through it and summarizing a good portion of it. But that's where we're going to be tonight. Let me pray for God to help us, and then we're going to start looking at this together. Father in heaven, um, we're grateful that you have called us here and that you've called us together. And Lord, as we look at this passage tonight, that you love to call your people together to dwell with them, to know you, and to be with you. So God, as we get together tonight in your presence, we ask that we would experience your delight and joy in having people near you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Architecture is not exactly um, the sort of thing that we have a uh, we're hankering to talk about a lot of times, right? We uh, we don't sit around the dinner table and think, what sort of uh, architecture did you see today, right? Unless you're a weirdo, you don't exactly think about like, well, like I or it's your thing. I mean, you may, may not be weird, but you know, if it's your thing, like you like talking about architecture, but most of us don't, and it's not exactly the most exciting topic. Um, but the only times I've ever seen it become an exciting topic is in like National Treasure or um, Indiana Jones, where it's like you're looking at the architecture and suddenly you find, like, here's the key to where that, you know, lots of money from 500 years ago is hidden, right? Like, it it only becomes interesting at that point. Um, But architecture means stuff, right? um, It communicates meaning and values. So, for example, this building that we meet in. I don't know if you guys are aware of this, but this was originally um, a meeting, a, a worship building for uh, the Jehovah's Witness here. They moved to another building here in the city. But uh, you'll kind of pick up on some of the values that they had in the building because I, didn't, I wasn't aware of this until talking to John Paul, the pastor for Church of the Redeemer. Uh, Jehovah's Witness don't sing in the worship service. And you pick that up when you look at the architecture in here, right? <laughs> the acoustics are horrible. <laughs> like, there, it's just a ceiling, and there's no way for the sound to project. And you'll notice these little speakers in the ceiling. It's just because they, they, I guess they stand in their service, and they just do a lot of talking. So no singing, right? So the architecture of the building communicates something about their values. Um, I mean, you think about, like, so you think about the old classic cathedrals, right? The huge, you know, s- ceiling, the grand, feel you get a sense of the grandeur of God when you walk in there. Um, and we could go on, right? We could talk about all the different ways that buildings communicate values. And as we're looking at, uh, effectively, these architecture plans for God's house, 
They're communicating values. It's communicating something about who God is, what he loves, what he likes. And it's a bit of a weird placement, right? Because if you're like, if you're writing a story, um, like you, uh, if you ever watched, you know, like Avengers or Lord of the Rings or something like that, like they don't end with, and now we're going to build a house, right? And spend the last 45 minutes of the movie building a house. <laughs> but this story, God has heard his people's cries. He's known their suffering and he has shown up by his own power to defeat his enemies and to free his people, right? And he does it through all these, these 10 miracles and then he walks them through on dry ground through the middle of a river and he brings them out, gives them, this is what it means to be my people, to be like me, gives them um, basically kind of like a birth certificate. This is what it means to be my people and this is what I'm like. And then we spend the last 15 chapters of this book in architecture. <laughs> it's a bit of an odd, odd situation. But we see in these, uh, we're going to be looking at 25 through 31, but they're complemented on the backside of what Pastor Jeff preached on last week. So last week we looked at the, at the golden calf. So then goes back and repeats this stuff. Um, but we're seeing in these next six chapters, in these six chapters together, that God loves to pull people into himself. He loves to draw them near, right? Um, and if you have any remembrance of last week, talking about the golden calf and any of the book of Exodus up to this point, um, everybody that's in this story is a big fat jerk and they don't deserve to be in God's presence, <laughs> right? <laughs> but God's merciful, draws them near, brings them into himself, loves to bring people close like us. And it's in God's mercy that he provides us a dwelling place with him, right? So we're going to be looking at, and these six chapters is the simple point that our holy God mercifully provides uh, a provides for us to dwell with him, to be with him, to be in his house, to be near him, even when we're not uh, deserving of it. And so we're going to be looking at our four values that we see about God's house uh, through these chapters um, that give us a sense not only of who God is, but what it's like to be with God, right? So we're going to pick up uh, verse, uh, we're going to pick up in chapter 25. And again, I'm not going to read huge sections of this. We're going to kind of drop down a few places. Um, but the first thing we're going to look at is the place of his dwelling, right? God's got the, the place where God dwells. Um, so what we're going to look at, um, do we have the, did I get, do we get the pictures in there of, okay. So if you look at these, these chapters, you're going to see there's all these different elements, right? You talk about God's house, like what's the furniture look like? What does the structure look like? That's what all these chapters are about. So we're just going to kind of go through and walk through the elements of God's house, and so, um, we'll start with the Ark of the, Ark of the Covenant. The, the, if you watch Indiana Jones, speaking of Indiana Jones, right? Raiders of the Lost Ark. Ark of the Covenant, right? So, Ark of the Covenant is there, and it's made of gold, and it's got these special parameters. Um, in the Ark of the Covenant went um, the Ten Commandments, and later they added the, uh, the rod of Aaron that budded, and it goes in the middle of... Of the, the of God's house, right? This is like the very middle, the center point of God's house, and it's called the mercy seat, because here we have angels with their wings over it, and they sit over, uh, they kind of like hover over and uh, shade our view, our view of God, so to speak. Um, but on top of the mercy seat, so chapter five, verse twenty-two, and there I will meet you from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony. I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. So God provides us, and it's fascinating that in the middle of where God provides his place, like this is like the mercy seat, so maybe where God sits, so to speak, 
he, he comes and he meets in with his people and he mercifully teaches them about him. He teaches them what is it like to be God's people? What is it like to repent and have faith and trust God? So in the very middle, God provides a mercy speech where he speaks to us and he provides care. This is the dad's seat at the table, so to speak. And then the next thing in the temple, let's go to the next one, is the bread table, right? This is where the table, uh, the, present, the bread of the presence. So chapter 5, verses 23 through 30. So this is where um, God is saying, look, I love to meet with my people mercifully, and I love to have a meal with them. I want to be near them. I want to have, um, I want to have table fellowship with them, a table fellowship. That's what we're going to do afterwards, right? We all sit around, have a meal together. We're doing it because God loves to have meals with people, right? Sit down, uh, and dining, people, dining with people is his goal. So the next thing in the house is uh, the golden lampstand. And if you're familiar with um, the Jewish faith or tradition, uh, this is going to look familiar. It's called a menorah at times. Um, but it's got these seven uh, candles that stick out for it. I mean, I'm not exactly sure what the, uh, the branches stand for. It might be the seven days of the week. Um, seven is the number of perfection in the Bible. Um, you see it in Revelation, where Jesus shows up at the very end of the Bible. And he says he's standing with the golden lampstand, which is the Holy Spirit. Uh, it's a picture for the Holy Spirit with the seven lamps representing the church. So this is the perfect people of God. But most importantly, um, it provides light in the presence of, uh, in the temple, right, or the tabernacle. Um, if you, we'll talk about this in a little bit, but the tabernacle would have been really dark inside because it would have had like four layers of leather wrapped around the architecture. So it was like, there was like, you know, the, the, the best tent job they could have ever done on a house, right? <laughs> like, it is super dark in there. And then this is what provides the light, right? And remember, later in the Bible, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. And God says, let the light of God's face shine upon us. So you're in it, when you're in the tabernacle, the only light you've got is this, and remind you, no, God is our light. He leads us. So then, uh, we'll go from the lampstand to the tabernacle. So verse 26, so again, I'm just going to, tell you, uh, if you have an ESV study Bible, these are straight, uh, I just, I ripped them straight from the ESV study Bible, so that's why there's all these words on there that you can't read from far away. I, I literally just like copied and pasted them, right? <laughs> so, but you see, so you, you see, get a sense of there's these four layers around it that go, and you have the, when you come inside, you've got this one section that's called the holy place, right? So the, kind of the big long section is like 30 feet wide by 15 feet and 15 feet and then you go into the back section, which is the Holy of Holies, which is a perfect square of 15 feet by 15 feet by 15 feet. And it is the most holy place, right? It is the place that only one person goes once a year, right? Like, this is like the, the lot, and they, this is a lot of that, like, you kind of don't want to get, because by the time of Jesus, they had actually gotten in this tradition of, like, tying a rope around a guy's foot, in case he went into the Holy of Holies and he wasn't worthy and God judged him and he died. They had to get a way of like getting him out, <laughs> you know? So this is like, this is the, the, the sense is, this is where God's, where the, the Holy of Holies is, is super, super, um, super, super holy, super special. But to get in between there where the light, so you see the, the candles and the bread and then um, the altar of incense. So you have the, the altar of incense, which... Uh, would have been where they would have um, put all the incense for the week, the year, or a day, twice a day. Let's go to the next slide. Uh, so that is the altar of incense. Um, next slide. Um, oh wait, ha! I've got my notes mixed up. So 
the bronze altar, which is the one that we were looking at before, that's where all the sacrifices would have happened, right? They would have, um, all the blood sacrifices would have been where they would have cut up the animals. Um, probably, they probably would have cut them up to uh, sacrifice them on the side and then put the parts that they were going to uh, uh, sacrifice in their ritual up on there. Um, we'll see the next, next slide. Do we have any more pictures? Oh, yeah, that's my fault. So this is the big... All right, go back to that one. We're working through it, guys. So here we go. This is the big one. This is the big kind of like, this is the overview, right? What's the, what's the 30,000 foot view? And so this way you would have had, um, you would have the outside court. would have been like his front yard, right? That's, um, that's the, uh, what is that called? I can't remember. I didn't write it down the court of his presence or something like that. That's where everybody would have kind of gone and would have done the sacrifices out there. So you see the fire, the altar going on right there. And then in between them, you, I don't know if you see those two guys in the middle there, had the basin of water because uh, they would have been doing a lot of sacrificing. And the point of the entire uh, entirety of this whole thing is, clen- is cleansing, right? And we're not talking about like germaphobe things here, right? Not cleansing the sin from our souls, but it was a bloody mess. So if going in and out of God's presence, cleansing their hands, going back and forth. This is the important thing is that the cleansing of the soul, the cleansing of our sin from us is what's being emphasized. So you have the, the, um, the outer court and the fence that went around it. Um, and so I think that covers all the, pick, the elements. So there's like, what, eight elements there or so of the house. Did I have one more? Are we good? One, there were seven. I have eight here, but seven works too. But um, the important thing is, is so we, we kind of covered like all these things. And it might seem kind of like a random amalgamation of like, ah, it's kind of like, okay. I mean, it makes sense. Like if you're going to have like animal sacrifice and all that stuff, you've got to have like the, the cleansing place and the place to burn the, the parts of the, the animal that you're sacrificing. And then you have to go in and it's special and you go into God's presence and that's special. But there's actually some... Um, there's some callbacks going on here in the Bible already. So we're in the book of Exodus, second book of the Bible. It's actually calling back to the beginning, the very the very first few chapters of the Bible. Because what the tabernacle is doing is it's basically um, imitating the Garden of Eden, right? So you have, um, in the Garden of Eden, you, you would have had uh, special stones, right? So within the, the details of all this stuff, uh, early in the uh, chapter two of Genesis, mentioned gold and all these special stones. It's the first time they're mentioned in the Bible. And then they're actually mentioned again with the high priestly garments, but have special stones they wear in uh, their outfit. Um, this, the going into the presence of God. So inside you could imagine you have one light, tree of knowledge, where God would have told, uh, revealed who he was and who they were. But you can imagine that the candlelight inside on all those, the gold and silver inside would have reminded you of the stars. When you get later on in the, into the temple, when it's made into a temple, the temple instructions, you have all this, the mentions of pomegranates and you would have had all these mentions of like flourish, like a flourishing and lavish abundance. That, the, those are pulled, those words are pulled straight from the Garden of Eden where um, God's presence originally dwelt with man, right, dwelt with us. Um, and then it, later on uh, in Leviticus, it talks about God going to and fro inside the tabernacle, right? He's walking to and fro in the presence in his, in his house, which is an illusion. Remember when in Genesis it says that God 
walked to and fro with Adam and Eve. So this is, this is kind of like a picture of what they lost, of what we lost when Adam and Eve fell, when they sinned against God. And it's a picture of what God desires for us to be. It's, it's a bit ornate, right? When you read through the details, I'd, I'd encourage you just like, hey, I know it's not exactly everybody's cup of tea, but read through it and you just kind of get through it. It's like, this is intricate and lavish and a bit over the top, right? But the point is, well, when God dwells with his people, he loves to lavish on them and show them his presence. That's what he had in Garden of Eden. That's what we lost. And so he's calling us back to, to be with his presence. It's, God is a lavish God. He's called it an overflowing, unending river of, of life, right? God, God's presence is abundant. And it's over the top and it's lavish. And it's, that's the, the, what's being pictured in the tabernacle is not just kind of like, well, you know, I guess they had to spend their money somehow, right? They had a budget item and they had to kind of get rid of the money. Um, and, you know, we've got about a million or so people, so we might as well make it good. No, the design is to show that God is an abundant God who desires to be in fellowship with his people, and he's calling us back to what we lost when we fell from him and sinned in Adam, which is why this whole system is unending, right? So it would have been every day some people are coming and offering sacrifices, every day, constantly. So it looks kind of pristine in this com- right, right here, but what's going on is it's constant sacrifices and atonement for sin constantly having to come forward and say I'm confessing my guilt before God I'm confessing that I'm not oh is it a different one that I'm not I'm not worthy to be in his presence and so the, the emphasis here is that in God's place where he dwells his he meets us with his mercy to remind us that he's give he's forgiving that he's loving right the whole system is set up to remind us God hears us, so you have the incense, right? The incense that goes, they, they would do incense in the morning and the evening. Later on in the book of Revelation, that's picked up and that's called, that's the prayers of God's people. God loves to hear jerks like, like us pray and ask him for help. And say, God, I, I've been a real jerk to my kids or my wife or my friends or I've been a bit of a thief with work or I've not exactly been that honest. God, forgive me, help me. God loves to hear those prayers. Like that, that's the, the altar of incense is saying, I love to hear the prayers of my people. Not only just prayers of confession, but then prayers to know God and to, to enjoy his presence with us. But then for God's mission to go forward, you have to remember this is a, a tabernacle. So it was a, it was a bit much to set up, but it was a, a big kind of a glorified tent. And it was intended to go around to follow God's mission forward. We want to pray for God, God, Use us to reach the people of Manchester. Reach our neighbors to tell them who you are. The other part of it is that there was a, it was a constant cycle of reminding that God is merciful, right? So in the very middle, middle of this is the Ark of the Covenant with the mercy seat on it. God's at the very heart of this, at the very heart of what's going on, God's mercifully coming in and being near his people that don't deserve to have him be near him, but he wants to be. His mercy is at the heart of this whole story. And that's kind of why we, we talk about the gospel a lot around here, right? We, we sing songs about the gospel. We just sang songs about the gospel. We're going to sing more songs about the gospel. Uh, every sermon, we're going to talk about Jesus and the gospel in one way or another. Right? We're not going to force it in, but we're going to, it's in the heart of the Bible, so we're going to see it in every passage. We celebrate a meal, kind of like in the tabernacle. We, we celebrate a meal about God's mercy to us. We, we need the gospel because just like these guys, uh, we forget regularly. There's this great story about Martin Luther coming up on the 500th anniversary. We're going to do a series on the Reformation, by the way. 
But we're coming up on the Reformation, 500th anniversary, and there's this great little story that, I, that encapsulates, I think, one of the core things that God recovered in his church through the Reformation. So if you know anything about Martin Luther, um, he was kind of like, a, like an MMA fighter, right? He was just like just a, a brash dude, but he was like a brilliant thinker, right? So he was kind of like, uh, I don't know, like John Piper with more attitude, I guess. Um, but he, um, there's a story where a guy in this church is like, look, Dr. Luther, we know, um, we know that you're brilliant. Like, we've read your books, right? I don't know if you've ever looked into, like, works of Martin Luther, like 60 volumes long. We know you're brilliant. But you, every week, you preach, what is it? 57. 57. Look at Drew. Sorry, Luther scholar here. Every, but every week, Dr. Luther, we know you're brilliant, but you, you preach the gospel to us every week. I said, beloved, I preach the gospel every week because we forget it every week. And the moment we remember it, I'll stop preaching it. <laughs> we need the gospel regularly. Now, I actually try to find the source on that story, and if it's not true, it should be, because I can't find it, but it should be true. One of you guys, one of these days, could say, Jacob, we know that you're brilliant. <laughs> Why do you preach the gospel to us? And then we could say it about us. But it's true. We need the gospel week by week because we forget. We forget that God is good to us. We get so allured by the, the news story and then the politics of the day, and we want to find our identity in those things, but God has given us, he's come to dwell with us. His house isn't just to show off, it's actually to draw us near, and his mercy is lavish. So that's the whole point of God's house. So we're going to go on. Is that cool? You guys track with me? All right, so we're going to, we're going to move on to the second part of what we're seeing in God's house, the purity of his dwelling. One of the things that you'll see as we were looking at this is that there are all these barriers, right? So you have the outer court, there's a barrier around it, and then you go through all these different sections, and then you have the holy, the, the main tabernacle, and it's got these barriers, right? And it's got these four layers of leather that go on top of it, and the special curtains that go to divide it. And then you have the holy of holies, so there's, bar- there's barriers one mark after another, right? The barriers are there in the... In, the setup of the tabernacle to remind us that God is holy and different. Actually, as you, if you were to read through the story or the, the architecture of the, uh, the tabernacle, um, the outside sections, outside barriers, are um, they're basically kind of called like like general like run-of-the-mill cloth. But the closer you get to the inner sanctuary, the finer the quality. So that like even here, uh, chapter twenty-six. Verse 31, and you shall make a veil of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twine linen, and it shall be made with cherubim. Right? Remember how we were talking about how this is a bit of a picture of the Garden of Eden? There's these angels protecting the presence of God. Remember that from the story of Eden? Skillfully worked into it. So there's a veil with, with angels in it. And you shall hang it with the four pillars of acacia wood overlaid with gold and hooks of gold and four bases of silver. And you shall hang the veil from the cross and bring the ark of the testimony in there within the veil. Right? So this is the, the most holy of holies. And the veil shall separate you from the holy place from the most holy. And you shall put the mercy seat on the ark of the testimony in the holy place. And you shall set the table outside the veil. And the lampstand shall be on the south side. So we saw that. And then verse 36, and you shall make a screen for the entrance of the tent of blue and purple and scarlet yarns, fine twined linen, embroidered with needlework. So like they've gone from like the outer court that has this fence around it that's basically kind of like uh, like tarp. 
down into the very center of the, of the heart of God, of worshiping God, where it's needlework. Like it's fine. So it's there to communicate that the closer you're getting to God, that it, you have to be more attentive to detail. <laughs> you are, it is God's presence is distinct and holy, and he is himself distinct and holy. And the closer you get, the more holy you begin to see him to be. Right, so it brings up this whole category. What is holiness? Actually, I just I did, forgot to bring it with it, but, but I recommend, um, if you're looking for a book on this, The Holiness of God by R.C. Sproul. I mean, it's been revolutionary for loads of people just to study the topic of what is, what is the holiness of God all about. Um, but the holiness of God is at its heart, it is, um, it, is a, it is a comment that God is, or is the truth in the Bible that God is distinct, that he's separate from us, he's a class unto himself, he's morally pure, and different, right? And everything that's true about him, holiness is not just kind of like one of the things that's true about God. Holiness is true about God in every way. I didn't get this quote to Jay, but R.C. Sproul has this great line. The Bible says that God is holy, holy, holy. So in Isaiah 6, Isaiah sees God, holy, holy, holy. Not that he is merely holy or even holy, holy. He is holy, holy, holy. You see that in the, the way the house is set up, right? There's three sections of holiness, right? closer to God. Holy. The Bible, ne- the Bible never says God is love, 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 or mercy, 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 or wrath, 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 or justice, justice, justice. It does say that he is holy, 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 and the whole earth is filled with his glory. Holiness is true about all of God, all of who he is. He is distinct and pure. All the ways in which we get frustrated and, and we're kind of twisted or bent or jerks or whatever like, none of that is ever true in any slightest fashion possible about God. God is pure in every way. He is true and good and merciful, but it's, it's true about all of who he is. He is holy and different from us in a way that we could never possibly contemplate. I, it's one of those things where I, I, I've been wrestling all week to try to, like, how can we wrestle with this idea of, like, that God is holy? Because it's just like, when you kind of get into it, you're like, He's separate and distinct, so does he have a VIP pass? Like, who is God? Like, he is, he is untainted by every mar of this world. He is holy and different and strength. He's self-sustaining, right? So we need air and food and water and a little bit of some sleep to be able to live. God is self-sustaining. He is holy and different from us. We can never contemplate how infinitely different God is from us. And he's morally pure, which means that to be in his presence should feel a bit uncomfortable. The only thing I can think of, we have to be careful when we make analogies about um, the attributes of God. So this is what we're talking about. Holiness of God is an attribute of who he is. We have to be careful about how we make analogies to it. But the, the analogy that came to mind, take it for what it's worth, but I think that the idea here is, I mean, if, you ever, if, I, if anybody's ever gone to visit a newborn baby, right? You, um, especially if that newborn baby's like in the NICU, right? Very, really fragile. So you have it, you have a little baby that's been like untouched by diseases or grubby hands or anything like that. And like, so even like, like children six months and under can't go in to visit the child because they haven't had special shots to be able to be in the presence to be with the baby to know that they're not transferring diseases in. Right, that, that baby is, is preserved in kind of like this little incubator bubble and it is untainted, so to speak, by disease that's that's kind of what we're talking about right god god is untainted he is pure and holy and good 
which raises this huge problem, right? <laughs> We've been looking at the story of about a bunch of people that are not pure and good and trusting and nice and loving. Sounds a lot like us. How does God dwell with us, right? How does God come in and be with us and be near us? Right, his mercy is all through this passage, and we were talking about it earlier. Abby read for us from Hebrews. This whole system of the, the sacrifices that come up is designed to remind them that God is merciful and that you can't get in on your own merit. You can't earn your way into God's presence, that God comes near, and it's about who he is. It's about his personality. It's about God's distinction. His mercy is totally unconditional. Right? He comes in, and he's merciful because of who he is. And I said unconditional. Well, it's actually not quite true. It is conditional. He's, he wants to wash away our sin, but he does it in his own way. Right? We, we try to earn God's mercy. Sometimes we try to earn God's favor, or we feel like I haven't proven to God that I'm good enough, or I haven't responded in a way that shows God that I'm, you know, worthy of his mercy. I don't know if you guys remember this scene. I'm not tipping the hat on the end of the movie because it came out 20 years ago. But Saving Private Ryan, the end of the movie, looks at the guy and says, you know, he's dying for him. Wait, Matt, have you not seen the movie? Cover your ears. <laughs> he says, earn it. You know what I mean? Like, earn this sacrifice that I'm making for you. When God gives, us this, gives them this system of his mercy, he's not saying, earn this mercy. No, God saved them. He wants them to be near him. But he's giving them this picture to say, you need, you need mercy more deeply than you realize. And I'm different from you in such a way that I'm going to give you mercy that's going to rock your socks. I'm going to, it's going to change everything about who you are. It's going to change everything about how you think about me, about the world around you. It is pure mercy. And his holiness exposes us, right? His holiness requires that he be merciful to us over host, right? Um, his holiness exposes, so like, it, talking about the light in the, temp, in the tabernacle, his, it exposes who we are. We're walking in darkness, and we see the light expose us. Bill made reference to 1 John 1 earlier. Walk in the light as he is in the light. Confess your sins to one another, and he will forgive you. Right? God's holiness exposes who we are, right? We were just talking about the Ten Commandments a few weeks ago. I mean, who from us can say in the last week that we have perfectly, without a shadow of the doubt, absolutely loved our neighbors without fault? I mean, some of you and I might not have accomplished that on the drive over here, right? But God, his mercy, he exposes us. Not so that we can see how bad we are and wallow in how bad we are, but actually as, this story, as we're talking about in this story, that he provides an atonement, which is called atonement, right? to take away the sin. So it no longer defines us, so that when we look at God and when we think about ourselves and all our faults and failures, we're not focused on, man, there's so much wrong with me, I just have to get it right. No, we, we look to God. Say, no, but God's merciful to me, and he's brought me near. He wants me near, right? This whole story is about God wanting us near him, and he's dealing with the plague of sin inside us. And God's dealing with it, bringing us near to himself. So, that leads a little bit to this question of what is God providing? So, 
We're going to look at the next thing, which is the third value. You guys tracking with me? I'm, I'm feeling a little under the weather, so I just want to make sure we're all tracking because my head's like in the clouds right now, not spiritually. <laughs> um, third thing we're looking at with this house of God, the tabernacle, is that he provides the, the provision for his dwelling. So if you're tracking with this, right, you're seeing that whole picture of like what does it look like to be, uh, to design God's house, to maintain it, all this gold, all this stuff. How exactly all is this going to happen, right? <laughs> Who's footing the bill? <laughs> the way that God designed this is that the initial offering that he asked people in this story, it's 25, at the beginning of chapter 25, the Lord said to the Mo- Lord said to Moses, "Speak to the people of Israel that they take for me a contribution." Right. So this is not this is not designed to be obligatory. Like everybody has to. It's a contribution. For every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. It goes on to talk about how the contributions are taken up and the things they're looking for. Right. But it's fascinating. The, the pattern of God in the Bible is to command people. This is what I'm calling you to. And then he provides the grace to obey that command. So these people are fulfilling it. They're saying, yes, I want to I I provide the needs to build this house for God. But they're not doing it because we have to, like, oh, well, God's given me so many years on this earth, I might as well give him money back. That's not how God's calling. He's saying, no, out of the lavish goodness of who God is, he's just saved them out of Egypt, Right? And frankly, probably all this stuff is all the stuff they st- stole is too strong a word. Plundered from the Egyptians. When they're leaving Egypt, they're asking for all the Egyptians' gold to say, we're taking all the good stuff because it belongs to God anyways. And now they're giving all this Egyptian gold and they're building God's house with it. God moves them to give. And then the part that I want to look at here, chapter 31, I'm going to read these uh, 11 verses because I think they're a bit startling to how we think about things sometimes. The Lord said to Moses, and this is all along the lines of the, God, uh, the provision for his dwelling. The Lord said to Moses, See, I have called by name uh, Bazalel, the son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and I have filled him with the Spirit of God. Wow, note that. I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and craftsmanship, to devise the artistic designs to work in gold, silver, and bronze, in the, cut, in the cutting stones for setting, in the carving of wood, to work in every craft. And behold, I have appointed with him, O Eliab, son of Ahisamach, sorry guys, I should have practiced that more, of the tribe of Dan. And, we, and I have given, to all, um, have given to all able men ability that they may make all that I have commanded you, the tent of meeting, the ark of the testimony, the seat, the mercy seat that is on it, and all the furnishings of the tent, the table and its utensils, and the pure lampstands and all its utensils, and the altar of the incense, and the altar of the burnt offering with all its utensils, and the basin and its stand, and the fine work, finely worked garments, and the holy garments of Aaron, and the priest of the garments of the son, and the service of the priest, and the anointing oil and the fragrance and, tents, uh, uh, and the fragrant incense for the holy place. According to all I've commanded you, they shall do. So you see what God's doing here. Did you pick up? I have given my spirit to them to equip them for all of these artistic de- endeavors, right? It's incredible to me. Like God could have designed a house that was stark. Wood, 
cloth, holy of holies, get it done, don't go in there. But what this, these verses are telling us, God loves beautiful things. God loves beautiful artwork. He loves beautiful craftsmanship, right? We're talking about uh, linens, and we're talking about woodworking, and we're talking about stonework, and we're talking about somebody who's kind of managing all of this. God gifts them with the strength and ability to do these things. Like, have you ever thought about that, guys? Your skills that you have, they're not just something that you kind of do. Whatever it is, writing, programming, artistic work, thinking, whatever it is, managing money, all of that stuff, those are all gifts that God has given us. And when it comes to artwork, these are gifts that God's given us. Like, the purpose of this artwork is to be enjoyed. <laughs> I mean, it's incredible. God has, in, this, in his word, said, I like beautiful stuff, and I want you to make it. And I, I want you to make it so much, I'm going to gift you from my spirit, which likes to make beautiful things, I want to give you the ability to make beautiful things. So guys, we should, whenever, Lord willing, we have a building or some sort of permanent location, I would love for our artwork to decorate the place up because it, it honors and glorifies God. It says, God is a good gift, good giver, and he loves artwork. I don't know if you ever thought about this, but um, over in James 1, right, this applies to our neighbors and how we think about our mission as a church and our neighbors and what does it mean to be the people of God. Over in James 1, I just want to read this. I didn't get this, to, so it's going to, you have to take my word for it, but it's James 1, 17. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. That means, like we've just been talking about, every artistic, every good creative work, every good skill is given to somebody because God loves to give things that are beautiful. And he loves to give people skills to make beautiful things. So that means all of our friends, for example, NHI, you know, New Hampshire Institute of Art, all of our friends, even the ones who don't know Jesus, <laughs> they have been given the skills and gifts from God to reflect their creator, to make artwork that glorifies and makes much of God, even if they don't mean to. Because it's a good skill, it's a good artwork. I mean, if you go into the artwork, like, that is Amazing. Maybe you don't understand it. Maybe you need to ask help to understand it. And maybe some of it's bad art. We can say, look, there's bad art. That's okay. But even when people don't know God, they make good artwork, arts uh, and good skilled things and do great programming and great uh, project management and lead companies uh, to flourish and to bless other people. They do it because the Spirit of God has given them the gift to do that. And we should just, as a part of our course of life, just say, you know what? I thank God for the gift that he's given you. I know you don't believe in Jesus, but he's given you this skill. Just to, it's a part of our honoring who God is. And specifically in our text, God gave him these skills to bless the church effectively, right? To build a place to honor God, to bless him. And a part of it, honestly, is, again, speaking back to the Genesis thing. Remember how we talked about that earlier? Genesis 1, verse 2. The earth was with, without form and void, and darkness was, darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Genesis starts out with darkness and chaos, and the Holy Spirit comes and rests upon God's creation. And then what happens? The fruit of the world happens, right? God creates. 
Then Exodus 31.3, I have filled him, so he's talking about in our text, that with the spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship. He has given him, the spirit of God has come and blessed him to be able to produce the fruit to glorify God. Ephesians 2.22, in him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the spirit. The Spirit of God indwells us, just like in this story, to produce fruit and good works and great skilled stuff to glorify God. Because God loves to take chaos and make beauty out of it. He likes to take your life of chaos and make beauty out of it. This table in the back is a perfect illustration of it, right? These, these children rescued from absolute horror and chaos and are producing beautiful works and gifts. God is working in your life to gift you to glorify him. And he's given you his spirit to make it happen. Right, so when we think about like guys leading worship up here or people serving or people having great ideas for how we can bless and love our neighbors, don't just kind of first kind of assess like, oh wow, I'm not as good as them or that, I, w- I should have had that idea or why didn't I think of that or, oh, poor me. I mean, I think of that all the time, but no, that is the Holy Spirit blessing our church, blessing you so that you can produce the work that Ephesians 2.22, in him you are also being built together into a dwelling place. We're talking about a house here and the Holy Spirit today, right now, is gifting you with ways to be a part of this verse being realized. In him you are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. It is a Holy Spirit activity for us to show up, to sing songs, to play instruments well, occasionally teach the Bible well, to eat great food, right? When we eat this food tonight, think the Holy Spirit gifted this person to make great food and thank the creator. You see, I'm I'm, I'm just, I'm fascinated. I'm in love with this idea that God is an abounding, lavishing, beauty desiring God. And he loves to help us be a part of it. Okay, we're going to finish up. You guys good with that? We're going to look at the last part of this. The pinnacle of his dwelling, right? Here in the house of God that he's been putting together, he has equipped them in every way. The house is there. But as we were talking about, the sacrifices go on and on and on and on and on. And they never stop, right? So we talked about that in Hebrews 9. Never stop. So where do we go from here? If you have a Bible, again, I didn't get this to Jay. This is all on me, so don't blame it on Jay. You can blame other things on Jay, but not this. John 2. If you have a Bible, you can look at John 2 with me here at the end. Verses 13 through 22. So here's Jesus. So the tabernacle eventually becomes a temple, right? The temple is um, a stone version of the tabernacle. In verse 13, the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and selling the pigeon, and sheep and pigeons. And the money changers sitting there and making a whip of cords, he drove them out of the temple with the sheep and ox. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. They do, do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered it 
when, that it was written, zeal for your house will consume you. So just a comment. Remember, we've been looking at the architecture of God's house. There's no bank in that house, right? There's no, there's no exchange. It is pure mercy from God that invites people in, and it's pure mercy from God that, that it forgives them of their sin. And so there is no, there's no trade between us and God. But by putting a bank inside the temple court, they were saying, we're going to trade God for his mercy. It's not the way it works. So Jesus is getting angry about that and kicking him out. And the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, so pay attention here, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. All right, that's an incredible feat because it, they said, the Jews said to him, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and he will raise it in three days? Jesus, give me a break. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scriptures and the word that Jesus had spoken. So there is a way that Jesus intended us to read this, these six architecture chapters and see Jesus. Jesus says, effectively, burn down, the, burn down the tabernacle, and in three days I will raise it up. Jesus is in himself embodying all these elements, right? We're looking at this furniture and I'm like, man, that's kind of weird. All these different pieces of furniture you put together. Jesus is in himself, when he comes into the world, is embodying every aspect of the tabernacle. He is the light of the world, right? He is the bread of life. He is the holy one who comes down. So just, this will be a Christmas text sometime. We'll talk about this as a Christmas text, but John 1.14 is one of the most important verses in the entire book of John. And the word, this is about Jesus, the son of God before he was incarnate. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now, that word dwelt is what we've been using for our points, but in the original Greek, I don't talk about the Greek that often, but in the original Greek, that word is tabernacle. And God the Son tabernacled among us. He set up his tent in the flesh of Jesus Christ. Son of God takes on flesh, becomes Jesus, and it says he is now the tabernacle, the place, because all that we've been talking about with this, this building is God coming in to dwell and be with his people. He has a house on the block, and he's inviting everybody in, and how do we get involved? How do we get in the door? Jesus is the way we get in. Jesus is now the perfect tabernacle. He's the one where we come to God. And so, right, that's why we go on to see that it is the cross of Christ where, uh, where he is laid down his life to take away our sin. Is the passage we were talking about earlier that Abby read for us, right? Hebrews 9 talks about all these ways that Jesus appeared as a high priest. We're going to talk about the high priest next week, right? We've been using the high priest of Hebrews 4 for our confession of faith this month. We're going to talk about the high priest next week. But Jesus entered, verse 24 of Hebrews 9, for Christ has entered into holy places made with, not into holy places made with hands, so the tabernacle, right? Didn't enter the tabernacle. But those things were copies of true things, right? But into heaven itself, and now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor is it to offer himself repeatedly. Remember, in the tabernacle, they constantly, they could never cleanse the sin away, but they had a reminder that there was sin and desperate mercy that they received. 
But they had to do it over and over again because animals can never substitute for you and me. We might, we might love them. We might give them great names and love our animals, but they can never stand in our place. Chapter 9, 25 of Hebrews. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest entered the holy places every year with blood of not his own, for then he would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Right, the tabernacle tells us that God is holy and he mercifully draws us in. But we're not going to keep doing the blood thing. Jesus comes in says, I take all the things that you would want to confess and that you would feel the weight of sin and judgment and shame and oppression and being held, demonic hold on you. He takes all those things and doesn't walk into the temple in Jerusalem. He walks into the very presence of God on a forsaken hill outside the city where he takes the scorn of the world and the judgment of God in our place, in his body, so that he can be ripped open and bled out and die in our place so that at the end of his sacrifice on the cross, Matthew 27, says the temple curtain was ripped in two, right? All this beauty that we were talking about, it was pointing, it's a big finger pointing to Jesus and when Jesus finds the true tabernacle, dies in our place so that we can become the people of God's presence where we actually come in and sit at table with God. When we're going to do this right now. We're going to sit at God's table. We're going to sit at the table together enjoy the spirit of God among us. The only way we get that is because now the temple veil which separated a holy God from sinful people, but now our sins have been done away with. Our sins have been canceled. There is no sin that would, ke- that would keep us from each other, that would keep us from God. And so now when we look at each other, we have Jesus between us. All we have is Jesus. The true tabernacle, the true dwelling place of God, the true place where God brings his people near. Which points to the final day where we will one day dwell with God in person. I just find it fascinating that at the end of Revelation, I'm just going to read this and we'll close with this. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God Almighty, and the Lamb who dwells with his people. One day we will see God face to face. Right now, between now and then, we're spiritually alive to him, we spiritually taste him and enjoy Jesus. But then, our eyes have been made new, and we'll see him face to face. Our holy God mercifully provides a way for us to dwell with him. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for showing us how you have saved us in Jesus and made us alive in him and that you have made a place, made a way, mercifully provided for us to come and be with you. Holy God, we, we don't presume, but we are grateful and we come running into your presence because you've already brought us near. So would you give us a taste of your presence with us tonight? It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. Please feel free to share or distribute this content, but do not charge for it or alter the content in any way without permission. King's Cross Church exists to treasure, 
proclaim, and grow in the gospel of Jesus Christ. To find out more about King's Cross Church, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com.